Why do bad things happen to good people? That's the age-old question that forms the backdrop to the book of Job. It's one way of raising the problem created by so much seemingly innocent suffering in a world supposedly ruled by a good, loving, almighty Father. Plenty of people, from philosophers to theologians to preachers to everyday folks, have offered explanations. We'll dig into Scripture today to look at some of their answers on Groundwork. Stay tuned. From Words of Hope and Reframe Media, this is Groundwork, where we dig into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Scott Jose. And I'm Dave Bast. And Scott, today we're moving on to the second program in a series on the book of Job that really we hope we can wrestle with you, the listener, with the problem of why bad things happen to us, why we suffer. Uh, When God is good, as we know, and God is great and powerful, it's that age-old problem. Why does he allow the things that happen to us? Uh, This program and the next one are really going to wrestle with uh, a lot of the answers people give, literally answers people give, because uh, some friends of Job are going to show up shortly, and we're going to think about what they had to say to Job in this program and again in program three of the series. But just to recap, unbeknownst to Job, behind the scenes in, in some very curious heavenly throne room scene, God and the accuser, as uh, Satan, the name Satan in Hebrew means, God and the accuser kind of make a bet. They make a wager that God thinks that Job worships him just out of pure love and devotion. Satan thinks he does it only because God does nice things for him. So take away all the nice things, God, and he'll curse you. Right. So in two steps, God gives Satan permission to do that. And so first, Satan strips Job of his family and all of his wealth. Well, Job still is believing in God. So then Satan says, well, okay, fine. What about touching him? And God says, you can't kill him, but okay, you can afflict him. So then Job loses his health and is afflicted with pain and sores and misery. His own wife tells him, curse God and die. And he says, you're being foolish. No, God gives, God takes away. I'm going to keep worshiping God. I don't understand this. And then he laments in Job three, he offers a very heartfelt lament where he says, I wish I'd never even been born. But he still is saying that to the God he believes in. Hmm. So he does not accuse God of wrongdoing, and he doesn't give up on the idea that there is a God. But at the end of Job 3, he's in absolute misery. He is what everybody hopes never to become, an absolutely destitute man. But he doesn't lose his faith, which is an amazing and profound truth. He doesn't lose his faith. So really, as we move further into the story, Uh, we'll see that what he really wants is some answers from God. He he really wants to be able to confront God, to see God face to face and get uh, some explanation for what's been going on. And as we know, the reader, it's a little more complicated than just, well, God's in charge. God does whatever he wants and so on and so forth. There is an evil enemy Uh, God seems to permit him a certain amount of rope, you know, with which to hang us. And so that's the story, and that's where we're headed. But meanwhile, some people show up, and what could be more important when you're suffering, when you're experiencing misery, feeling down, than for human companionship, human friendship? And so we read this uh, near the end of Job 2, before, actually, Job offers his lament, which we heard from Job 3. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, when they heard about all the troubles that had come upon Job, 
They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go sympathize with him and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud. They tore their robes. They sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Yeah, so there they are, the three friends of Job, would-be comforters. <laughs> Whenever I read this passage, I think of a great scene uh, in Jane Austen's novel, Pride and Prejudice, where uh, the family has gotten into a, a tragic situation, a sorrowful situation, and this clergyman, Mr. Collins, who's related to them, who's a real uh, jerk, comes up and shows at the door and says, I've come to condole with you. Mm. I've come to condole. So these friends, uh, they're not going to prove to be very comforting to Job, but at least maybe we could say they've got the right idea. Well, they sit with Job for an entire week. They, they themselves are so overwhelmed with what he has lost that at first they actually honestly don't know what to say. Their, their hearts are in their throats. They're crying. Of course they are. That's appropriate. Uh, so they sit in utter silence for a week. And um, we're going to see very soon that that was them at their most useful. <laughs> yeah, uh, that, right. that, that was the best thing they did, because as we're going to see in just a few moments, once they start to talk, things take a turn. Right. Yeah. That's when everything goes left. But here's the point, I think. I, I happened to go to a seminary commencement a few weeks ago, and the president of the seminary, who's a good friend, wanted to give a charge to the graduates. The, okay, so these are now newly minted MDiv students, and they're most of them heading for the pastorate in some role or capacity. And as he charged them, he said simply this, uh, I urge you to move toward the pain in people's lives, move toward the pain in the world. And I thought, yeah, that is powerful advice for any pastor, for any Christian for that matter. If we move toward the pain, God can use us to bring comfort. But it's hard to do, isn't it? Yeah, we just as soon not do it. And even as a pastor, I know that there were times when I had to walk into the funeral parlor for a particularly tragic death or when I had to walk into a hospital room where the odds were really good the person in the bed was going to die while I was there. And I remember standing outside the funeral home, standing outside the hospital room and really having to take a deep breath and just sort of steal myself and walk in because yeah. I just assume not. Yeah. But Job's friends move to the pain here and, and good for them for doing it. It's not going to turn out great, but they have the right idea. Yeah, and the first rule in trying to be a comfort to another person, uh, trying to be especially uh, an agent of the gospel, of the good news, is show up. Just show up. So they show up. But in just a moment, we'll listen to what they have to say, and that's much less helpful. We're glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. 
I'm Scott Jose, along with Dave Bast, and you're listening to Groundwork and this second episode in a five-part series looking at the book of Job and looking at particularly those questions that for people of faith are very pastorally acute questions. Why God, why? Where is God when it hurts? If God loves me, why am I hurting so badly? Why didn't he prevent this? And of course, that's an age-old question, Dave. And, and of course, none of us know how many bad things God did prevent from happening to us. Probably he does that a lot, but you can't yeah. talk about what didn't happen. Right. The accident that didn't happen, you don't know about. Only yeah. God knows about it. So we are protected. We are hedged in. We are blessed, but not always. And some of the bad things that we fear most do happen, and they sure did to Job. And when that happens... The church shows up, hopefully. The family shows up. And in this case, friends show up. Three friends have come, and they spend a week just sitting with Job, saying nothing. They just cry with him. And that's a lovely thing. Yeah, that that is a lovely thing. But now we're going to go on and see what they start to say. And what they what they try to do is explain things to them. And and we have to keep coming back and grounding ourselves in the main fact or truth of the story, and that's that Job is a righteous person. That's how he's introduced at the outset of the book in in the very first verse. Job is blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And even God says that about him. Mm -hmm. God uh, kind of brags on Job, see how upright he is. And yet all these terrible things happen. And, And there comes the problem. Because, you know, frankly, Scott, we don't worry so much when bad things happen to bad people because we kind of figure they got it coming, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, we just live with the assumption that good people should get good things, bad people should get bad things. But there are two scenarios that happen all the time that do bother us. We're somewhat bothered when good things happen to bad people. Yeah, you might still think, well, okay, so hey. he cheated and he, and, he, and he still made a million bucks on the deal. But, you know, he'll probably still get his eventually. But the flip of that is when bad things happen to genuinely good people who we just know didn't deserve this. Yeah. This is a saintly pillar of the church. And, oh, my goodness, uh, her husband and kids all died in a car accident. We know she didn't deserve this. Why? So essentially, the argument of the friends, as we see it unfold, is that bad things don't really happen to good people because you get what you deserve. And if things are out of balance right now, just wait. It'll all be sorted out in the end. So here's the first speech of Job's friend Eliphaz from Job chapter 4. Eliphaz says, consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they perish, at the blast of his anger they are no more. So, so those straightforward, are, yeah, right? All right. There, there's the kind of uh, re- you just want to say, well, there now. <laughs> that was yeah. easy. The, in, um, the innocent never perish. Right. The evil always do. So what's starting here, and this is going to be a dynamic that's going to stretch on. So this is Job 4. These arguments are going to go all the way through Job 31. Yeah. I mean, this is going to go, or no, even farther than that, I think, uh, to Job 37. So huge, huge chunk of this uh, book is going to be back and forth between Job and these three friends and then a fourth one who uh, will show up later. And basically, they are arguing backwards. They're saying, here's the structure of the universe. The innocent never have a bad day. So we can deduct from that. So they're kind of using logic. If you suffer, you weren't innocent to begin with, Mm -hmm. because don't mess with my worldview. And that's essentially what they're saying. Job, you've told us you're innocent. You've told us you don't deserve this. But, well, look what happened to you. 
fess up. What'd you do? Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's also, uh, they kind of riff on this with a, a parallel suggestion or argument, and that is that maybe God is disciplining you. Uh, maybe you are okay. Basically, you're okay. You're innocent, but you've done something. You've gone astray in some way, so God is correcting you, and he's using suffering to kind of bring you back. So in Job 5, Eliphaz goes on with his uh, argument, blessed is the one whom God corrects, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. From six calamities he will rescue you. In seven no harm will touch you. You will know that your tent is secure. You will know that your children will be many. You will come to the grave in full vigor, like sheaves gathered in season. We have examined this, and it is true. <laughs> I like that last line. Yeah. Hey, we, we, took a, we took a look at this, Job, and uh, <laughs> there it is. You know. Yeah. So what, what do you got to say? And then Bildad, his, uh, another friend, Bildad, uh, comes in a little bit later in chapter 8 in Job 8. Does God God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. So again, confess and see if God comes back to you. And, you know, best case scenario, okay, you did something bad. God had to give you a spanking. He had right. to discipline you, you know, and it's sort of like what parents sometimes say to their kids if they give them a little swat of the butt, this hurts me more than it does you, but it's for your own good. And they're kind of saying, best case scenario, he's disciplining you and you're going to come out stronger. But bottom line for Eliphaz and Bildad so far, you did do something wrong. Let's talk about it. Confess it to God. And then maybe God will come back and restore you. Yeah. Here's the great and striking thing about all of the friends' speeches in Job. The striking thing is how orthodox they are. Sure sound like it. They, I mean, this is all Bible truth. You know, God is righteous. God always does what's right. Listen to Psalm 145. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. I mean, when we read it in the Psalms, we think, yeah, man, that's great. When we read it in Job, from the mouths of his would-be comforters, we think, whoa, wait a minute, there could be something wrong about yeah. this. They're also right uh, in terms of saying that biblically there is this idea that sometimes God disciplines us and he tries to straighten us up a little bit and build some character in us. Uh, you know, I mean, you get Hebrews 12, which quotes Proverbs 3, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when the Lord rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his child. So again, biblically, they've got this stuff on their side. But what's interesting, Dave, and and we'll loop back to this, and we noted this in the the first program in this series, we readers know something Job and his friends don't know. This wasn't God's idea. This wasn't something God cooked up and sent to Job. This was, bizarrely enough, in the setup of Job, a wager, a test from Satan the accuser. So there's more going on behind the scenes than Job knows, but there's way more going on behind the scenes than the friends know, too. Yeah. They're orthodox and wrong. And Job, in the face of all these good-sounding arguments and uh, sort of biblical, pious truths uh, being spoken by his friends, Job just keeps on saying, 
No, 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 I haven't done anything. I'm innocent, which is not to say he's sinless or perfect, right. but it is to say he's convinced of his own integrity, his own uprightness. There must be something more here, something that I don't understand, something that isn't so pat and so clear and so easy uh, as you think. And uh, yes, it's true. All that you say, God disciplines his children and uh, the Lord is good and what he does is right. You are going to reap what you sow. I mean, Paul says that in Galatians 6. Job's right. And here's how we readers know he's right. God said it to Satan at the beginning. Look at my servant Job. There is nobody as righteous as this guy. That's a key point. God knew it. And so when Job keeps saying, I am righteous. I don't deserve this. I mean, you can see why his friends would say, yeah, right. But God said it. Yeah. So what's the takeaway for us? That's the question. And does this have something to say to us, perhaps, when we're attempting to be comforters to a friend uh, who's in trouble? That's what we want to conclude our program with in just a moment. What if you could spend time in Scripture while you drove to work? What if, while you were making dinner, you could engage in thoughtful reflection about your relationship with God? What if every time you exercised, you worked on your body and your spirit? When you subscribe to the Words of Hope Daily Devotional, you'll be able to listen to a few minutes of scripture and reflection wherever you are. Check out the Words of Hope Daily Devotional wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Groundwork, where we're digging into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Scott Jose. And I'm Dave Bast. And uh, as we look at the counsel and the advice and the sentiments of Job's three friends, his would-be comforters, uh, we come away thinking, as truthful as many of their statements are, there's something not quite right about them, not quite appropriate. They don't know what's going on exactly in Job's life. And uh, the basic point seems to be that they may be saying the right things, but at the wrong time and in the wrong way. Yeah, as we noted just a few moments ago, they're really good examples of how you can be perfectly orthodox and still wrong in terms of how you apply your orthodoxy. It's also interesting to notice, though, Dave, that so here in Job, we have three friends, soon four, who will accuse Job. Bad things happen because you were bad. But, you know, I've met people, and you have too, and as pastors, we've counseled with people who accuse themselves of Mm. this. They can't figure it out, Mm -hmm. but they say, look, I I know God sent this to me for a reason. I'm sure it's because of my sinfulness. I'm being punished somehow. And I I remember uh, my colleague, John Cooper, who taught apologetics and philosophical theology at Calvin Seminary for many years, always pointing out to people, the Bible teaches us that the punishment for our sins was laid on Jesus. God yeah. doesn't punish us for our sin anymore. So that's something that we, we need to point out to ourselves yeah. and John, to each other. Great old John Newton once said, "We he may give us a cup that we have to drain, a bitter cup, but it's not penal. It's not yeah. punishment because yeah. uh, Jesus drank that for us. So anyway, sometimes our friends try to comfort us by saying, well, you must have deserved this somehow, which isn't a very nice thing to say. But again, they've got orthodoxy on their side. But sometimes we say it to ourselves and it's not necessarily true. And, you know, there are there are places in the Bible, Dave, where even in the New Testament and even with Jesus, where people try to connect the dots. They see a bad outcome. And so they, they reason backwards to say, well, what brought that about? It must have been a bad event. Yeah. And one of those is in Luke 13. Right. It's a great illustration where Jesus, it's Basically, I think Jesus' take on the story of Job. 
So some were present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. So it's Jesus' take on a couple of the tragedies of his day. Right. And it reminds me of another passage in John 9 where Jesus and the disciples encounter a man born blind. And in that day, a lot of people assumed that that was almost like a curse. Uh, you get born blind. And so the disciples ask what people always ask in that day, Lord, who, who sinned, this guy or his parents, that he was born that way? And Jesus says, neither. This situation is here. You're going to be able to see the glory of God through it. But your attempt to connect the dots is just wrong. But we always do that. And I, I, I have a feeling I've May have mentioned this once before in another groundwork program in a different connection but years ago when there was this very back 1989 or so there was a devastating earthquake in san francisco and there were a lot of christians in the church who um who wanted to connect this with punishment maybe for having such a big gay population or or being you know they, they were you know sinful lifestyles and so god you know punished them with the earthquake rich mao who was president of the fuller seminary at the time was invited to preach at a church where uh, they clearly wanted a sermon in the Sunday after the earthquake where he was going to say something like that, but he wasn't going to play that game. So for his text, he chose the line from Elijah at Mount Horeb, God was not in the earthquake. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. Don't try to connect the dots, Jesus says, because whenever people do in the Bible, they almost always get it wrong. Yeah, uh, but he draws a, a different but interesting yeah. lesson from this, yeah. doesn't he? And it seems to be about the precariousness of life and uh, how fragile we all are and how we need to keep you know close to the lord uh, never mind thinking those people were sinners you know this would have been good advice for eliphaz and bildad and uh, the other guys zophar right. if they could have heard jesus say to him you know don't think that job is more evil because he right. suffered no i tell you it doesn't work that way but unless you repent you will perish look at yourself and you want to go assigning blame for to people for what happens to them. Uh, be careful. Don't go there. But instead, yeah. you turn to the Lord. And we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. But near the end of our uh, next program in this series, we're going to find out that, guess what? Uh, Bill, Dad, and Eliphaz and Zophar are asked to confess their sins uh, and, and make atonement for the bad things they end up saying. But, right, that, that's sort of the idea that there's always more going on than we know. Don't be simplistic in trying to retroactively connect dots to who did what wrong to result in this bad situation. It's not that simple. It's just not that simple, Jesus says. And anyway, you know, kind of mind your own business and take care of yourself. I mean, we are, we are all in the same situation. We all serve God. We all have problems. And, and we just have to, you know, yield ourselves to God and to his grace and to his care and to his forgiveness. You know, uh, there's a wonderful thing that that can come out of this i think for all of us as we think about the gospel message and christ taking our punishment upon himself and uh you know we know that at the cross he really in in a literal sense died in our place so there's no more punishment for us you don't get what you deserve <laughs> mm. i don't get what i deserve instead of punishment i get grace and that's the good news of the gospel so 
as we sit with people, as we go to them, as we, we said at the outset, we move toward the pain, uh, we become ambassadors of the good news. We become little Christs in the place of Jesus, attempting to bring our comfort. The best thing is just to be there, uh, to sit, to be silent, to be patient. Don't try to explain. Don't try to give reasons. Don't try to make cheer people up and make them feel better. Just be with them in solidarity and love. Pray with them. God will use that. And thanks be to God that he does. Well, thank you for listening and digging deeply into scripture with Groundwork. We're your hosts, Scott Jose and Dave Bast, and we'll hope you'll join us again next time as we continue studying the story of Job to gain a better understanding of balancing love and truth as we console our friends who are in suffering. Connect with us at our website, groundworkonline.com. Tell us scripture passages and topics you'd like to hear us discuss on future Groundwork programs. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Media in partnership with Words of Hope. Our recording engineer is Dodd Morris, and our post-production supervisor is John Reeder. Our studio relations manager is Christy Prinz, our content and managing producer is Courtney Jacob, and our executive producer is Stephen Koster. <laughs>